for the industry to really continue to grow, sustain, double, triple, quadruple in size, we're just gonna have to bring in billions of capital. And that has to have confidence attached to it. And that confidence yeah. is gonna come from the quality that, the, that is being experienced by our hunger. This is the Solar Disruption Theory. This is the Solar Disruption Theory podcast. My name is Chad Towner. I'm your host. With us today, we've got the CEO of Freedom Forever, Brett Bushy, with us again. Thanks for joining, Brett. How you doing? Doing great. Doing great. You look great. You, uh, I know you didn't get to play pickleball this morning, but you is the shirt kind of a little head nod to the pickleball game? Yeah, well, I actually can't wear this when I play pickleball because the ball would get lost, and so um, I have to wear this on non-pickleball days. <laughs> okay. It's an illegal shirt for playing pickleball. And the shoes, too. That's like the Boise State blue turf when they wear blue jerseys, right? Yes, and you actually have a lot of issues around TV and the blueness and everything like that. And being in the sports <laughs> business, we used to have to get approval for the color of our field because Boise State did that. Oh, wow. Well, uh, looking good. Thanks for joining. And today we've got the CEO of Mosaic, one of the largest solar financing companies in the United States. His name is Patrick Moore. Patrick, how you doing? Thanks for joining. I'm doing great. Thank you for the invite. I've been looking forward to being on the show. I was always wondering where, when I was going to get an invite. <laughs> well, hey, you've been the CEO for Mosaic since August of 2023. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I want to back up a little bit and figure out how you got to this point. Um, I, I know you've spent about 30 years in the financing world prior to this, um, but the one thing I've always wanted to ask you about, I know you spent quite a bit of time, you enrolled in the Navy, um, and thank you for your service as a helicopter pilot. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, in San Diego. Okay. Walk us through a little bit about how you got into the Navy and how much was Top Gun an influence on your decision to join the Navy? <laughs> so the original Top Gun was like 1986, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1987. So you oh, can wow. imagine there was yeah. some, uh, some motivation there. Uh, and then I went to the Naval Academy uh, four years there and then went to flight school in Pensacola, Florida. So I knew from the time I joined the Navy that I wanted to fly. I didn't know what I wanted to fly. It was kind of in inspiring to think, oh, fly jets would be really cool yeah. and all this other yeah. stuff. But actually, when I got into flight school and then you fly fixed wing, you fly helicopters, uh, I really liked flying helicopters. You fly mm. low. I mean, it's just like it's very seat of the pants. It's like it's a lot of fun. So, it, you know, people and and thank you for uh, for thanking me for my service. But I always say my service was a privilege. Yeah, it really was. It was a it was a great job. I worked with great, committed hardworking people, uh, made some of the best friends I've ever had in my life. And, and it was just a great experience. And how long were you in the Navy? Uh, I was in the Navy for, well, if you, I count my four years at the Academy, 11 years. Okay. And then, so, yeah, because after that you, you were, you served as like I, an I analyst. Seven years. Yeah. I, I was a, a pilot for a while and then I was still technically a pilot, but I was at the Pentagon and then I worked at the Pentagon for a few years. And then I had, uh, my, uh, my wife at the time, we were blessed with three children in 11 months. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, and so that was not the time for me to go back out to an aircraft carrier. And I was at the end of my obligated service, so I decided, hey, this is a good time to transition out, find something else to do. I'm doing the math on three children in 11 months. You had to have <laughs> at least one set of twins. Yes, yes. So it was a, a boy and then followed by identical twin boys who were very premature, which is why they were born so close together. Okay. 
Have we? We've never had somebody that had worked in the Pentagon on the show, or that's had three kids and eleven moms. <laughs> that's the point. I'm still well, could, stunned with that. You could have right? triplets, I guess, but to do it to pull it off without triplets is a little bit hard. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, you, you said eleven months, so I figured if you said three kids in one day, I would I would have guessed triplets. But Pentagon, like um, I think Pentagon analysts, I think like Jack Ryan. Like, is it anything yeah. like that show? So it you know it was kind of cool. I was a what they call a briefer for the chief of naval operations, which is like the CEO of the Navy. So we would come in at like three thirty or four o'clock in the morning, and you would just pull in all of the reports that from around the world. And then I had a certain region that I was supposed to brief on. And so you would just get up, you know, you would just prepare, memorize everything. You had to know all the facts. You had to anticipate all the questions. And then you'd just sit there in front of the chief of naval operations and his senior staff. And they would just pepper you with questions about what was going on in the Navy. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was kind of high pressure, but it, it, was a, it was a good job. And it, it really taught me to uh, attend to the detail because when you first go in, you don't realize, like, you just memorize what was in the report, but you don't necessarily think to yourself, well, what are they going to ask me that's not in this report that I need to go find out? Because they're not, you know, not knowing the answer is not, like, acceptable. You have to be able to you know, under, understand and anticipate what it is they're going to ask. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a cool job. You, you went into the Navy and you chose to get into flying helicopters because you said it's a lot more fun. You fly a lot closer to the ground. I flew, I got my license in fixed wings, so just normal airplanes. Um, one of the things they would always teach me is, you know, those those helicopter pilots, they are, they're a little bit crazy. Like it's, <laughs> you know, like if, if, if an airplane engine goes down, you can kind of glide down to safety. And I know you can kind of do a similar thing with helicopters, but the risk, you know, I, it's interesting to hear that a CEO of a finance company that spends a lot of your time probably assessing risk and minimizing risk right. <laughs> chose to get into probably one of the riskiest parts of the Navy. Do you think that helps you in, in your role today at Mosaic? You know, I think it does. One of the other things about helicopters is it's a crewed aircraft. There's always two in the Navy. There are always two pilots. And there's usually four, five, sometimes six people uh, in the crew. So you really learn to operate as a team, you know, whereas I think in like the fighter pilots, it's a cool job, by the way, but a lot of them are single cockpit. They're up there flying on their own. They're part yeah. of a larger mission, but they're really sort of not really part of a team, so to speak. Uh, and I think one of the things that you learn very quickly is that when you all get in the helicopter together and you take off at night off the, off the ship, like rank and, you know, authority, like who's doing what it all has to be clear, but it doesn't matter because everyone's life is worth the same. Yeah. So it's, it just sort of equalizes everything. And it's like, we're all in this together. We all have a combined mission. Nobody's more important than anyone else. If, if you see, you know, something that's going wrong, call it out. Right. Like, and, and challenge each other because, you know, again, like once you, once you step in that helicopter together, you know, everybody's taking the same risk. Yeah. Yeah, you love flying, don't you, Brett? Uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan. And um, <laughs> I was the other night um, flying from Seattle to San Diego, and as soon as I landed, my phone is just going off with the news of what happened. And I happened to be on a Boeing MAX 9 from Seattle oh, to San right? Diego during the same time period with what happened with the, you know, the infamous Alaska flight right. that left Portland and was going into Ontario. And I was on an Alaskan airline flight and I've already just not been a big flyer, but you know, next week I'm driving to Salt Lake city. It's nine <laughs> hours. I am not getting on. And then what was even more disconcerting and uh, you know, 
couple of days later, I'm watching CNBC and the analysts are talking about why I think Boeing is still a buy is because all of the airlines don't really have a choice. All right, that the earliest you can get an Airbus is 2030. So therefore, the stock's not going to go down. And if there's a lack of quality control, it really doesn't matter. All right, <laughs> and you, you hear stuff like that, oh. and I'm like, this does not make me feel any better to fly. Right. It makes me feel better if I'm an owner of Boeing stock. All right, but um, I just thought it just—it's crazy that something so technical and so specific that there's only really two airline manufacturers and that they basically are out to 2030 to get a new airplane. Yeah. That is mind boggling to me. And that just also tells you like, no matter what they say about quality control, those planes are going to be on the tarback. They'll figure out a way to get them. And that's just scary to me. Now for somebody that doesn't fly, um, you guys probably understand it. It's probably a lot less scary for you, but, um, uh, I just have massive anxiety when I fly, and I'd prefer to drive. So when John you go Madden. from here to Las Vegas, your Las Vegas office, I assume you just drive that, right? You don't yes. Fly. Yeah. I've flown one time, and it was only because I was flying up to Seattle and then back to San Diego on that right, trip. Otherwise, right. I've driven every single time. And Temecula is not known for being very convenient because we're an hour away from airports in Orange County, Ontario, and San Diego. So mm. I drive every time to Arizona, into Las Vegas and Northern California. Once I get outside of that, um, that group of cities, I fly. So with what you did in the Pentagon, tell us what happened next. How did you go from your role as an analyst in the Pentagon into the finance world that you spent the next 30 years? I had no idea. Well, I had an idea what I wanted to do, and then I changed my mind at the last minute. So I I decided to get out, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to become a pilot. I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun job when someone else is paying you to do it. And, you know, it's just like the military flying is very unique, but I didn't necessarily want to transition to, to commercial airline pilot. So I, uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to do something probably sitting at a desk, like at a, a grown up job is mm-hmm. what I thought about it at, yeah. at the time. So I decided I wanted to be an attorney. Um, and so I applied to, I was in, uh, Pen- yeah, I was at station at the Pentagon. So I was in DC at the time I applied to Georgetown law school, got in there. It was like three weeks before I was going to start law school. And I woke up one morning. I'm like, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> like, what, what, how did I come up with this idea? What I realized is I kind of wanted to go to law school because I thought it was sort of cool. Like the curriculum, the learning, the, the structured thinking, the logic, all that stuff yep. that they put you through. But I was like, but I don't, I don't know any happy attorneys. And no offense to attorneys that might be listening to this, but like, it just wasn't a profession that had a draw for me. It was like an educational track that had a draw for me. And I'm yeah. like, I don't, what am I going to do after that? I've got a family to support. So uh, I just, I sort of bailed on that idea. And I'm like, well, now I don't know what I'm going to do. It turns out at the time, uh, Capital One, uh, which was also in the Washington, D.C. area, credit card company growing really quickly uh, in the 90s. And they were just like looking everywhere they could for like recruitment pipelines. How do mm. we get people in to help grow this, this company that's growing really quickly? And so they started recruiting people directly out of the military. And, and as I like to say, like once one of my buddies got in, he just like held the door open and the rest of us ran in behind oh, him, wow. you know? Yeah. And uh, so we all got in, in through the recruiting process. And next thing I know, I'm, I, I went from flying helicopters to selling credit cards. Selling credit cards. And then how did you get in touch? So fast forward, how did you get in touch with Billy Parrish? Or was he, who was the first person you met at Mosaic? And how did you get to um, 
your your how were you introduced to Mosaic? Billy was the first person that I met, um, and uh, and it was a um, it was a recruiter. Uh, so at the time, this was in 2017. Yeah. Um, and and so um, you know, uh, Mosaic had really gone into residential solar lending lending in 2015. Couple of years of really rapid growth and success. Pioneer in the market. Um, and it was like a point where they'd sort of grown where Billy and the, and the group of people who had been so the entrepreneurial energy and, and sort of passion and drive behind it also realized that, well, we've never sort of run a finance company of the size this thing's growing to. So they said, hey, let's go look around and see if we can find someone who l- loves this industry as much as we do. Uh, but also, you know, sort of knows what they're doing in terms of managing and scaling a finance company. Um, and I had been at uh, a company called Renovate America in in San Diego at the time. Uh, I'd launched a, a unsecured home improvement financing product there, and uh, and I just that the draw for me there had been the sort of um, renewable energy, energy efficiency financing. Like I financed just about everything you can buy um, over the course of my career: cars, boats homes, you, you you name it. But yeah. there's something about what we do as an industry, right? It not only sort of drives job creation and it drives, uh, you know, growth and success in markets, but it also helps people consume less. And it also helps facilitate the, uh, the clean energy transition. And so like I could take what I already knew how to do and apply it to something where I really believed in the mission. And as soon as I met Billy, like he was all about the mission, 100% passion yeah. for what Mosaic stands for, which is really facilitating the clean energy transition by providing loans, uh, giving people a way to pay. Sounds a lot like uh, your mission. Yes. I mean, I've, I've loved, I love Billy. Like uh, Billy is, you know, one of my favorite people in residential solar. And I was called like, he's kind of the father of the unsecured loan. Um, and like, that's what inspired me so much when I met him is like, he had this mission. There was such an alignment between the mission of freedom and mosaic that even, you know, we went through, we did a lot of business in 15 and 16. And then we had like a three year period where we didn't do a lot of business together. Um, but we still had and maintained a really, really good relationship. And so when he called me, and I think it was 20, to talk about, hey, what can we do to, have, to be further aligned? How can we have a deeper partnership? You know, I obviously had an affinity towards him, and I listened, and it was great. And it's just been a great, um, I think that was over three years ago, and uh, it's been a great partnership. I'm sad to see him go, but getting to know you and seeing what you've been able to do and kind of elevating uh, you know, your position and your game in this industry is exciting because you are very different uh, than Billy. I know you guys have the same mission, um, but, you know, just knowing and getting to know you, you know, the numbers and everything like that, it's it's been incredible. And I love being around people that are smarter than me because you can learn from people that are smarter. And a lot of people that are insecure don't want to be around people like that. But it's awesome because I've learned so much from you on the finance side. Not to mention... Um, Billy was voted the sexiest man. What was it on the magazine? You love talking about it. Gosh, it was like <laughs> 05 or 07. Um, I'm trying to think what the magazine, but he was in the top 25 sexiest <laughs> men. And that is a true story. I don't know if you even knew that. And That's uh, not a story he tells, so no. And, and like Brad Pitt was number Look one and he was like 14. <laughs> So, and he's a little different, had more hair back then. 
So, but he was a good looking man. Um, uh, but yeah, he doesn't like when I talk about it, but like we dug that out. I think the first, uh, Billy was part of the first season of Solar Disruption Theory. So, and uh, we talked a lot about that. He was smiling <laughs> from ear to ear. We talked about the Prince story, but that was my favorite. Yeah. So, not hey, Vanity Fair, but I don't know. I got to remember what it is <laughs> right now. With, with Mosaic, the thing I know everybody wants to hear the most about, the majority of our audience are, are sales reps, sales teams in the solar space. What the heck happened with interest rates? Let's go back a year, a little over a year ago. Um, why did interest rates go up so fast and so high when they were so low prior? And, and, and we'll go from there. What happened with interest rates? Yeah, so we were coming out of a, a period of time where, you know, it was very unnatural, like 2019, 2020, 2021. The, the, those interest rates were like all-time lows, right? And so we, as an industry, I think, benefited from that significantly. But it was also, I think, a little bit easy to take it for, take it for granted, yeah. right? What we're in now is a little bit more of a normal interest rate environment, if you look at it on a historical basis. Um, but, you know, when the economy becomes overheated, right, then the Federal Reserve wants to tighten the monetary policy. So, you know, they don't telegraph exactly what they're going to do, but they usually will do some signaling. We're going to begin to raise the interest rates. What I think no one in our industry had been through previously with this loan type and, and coming off of the all-time lows was how much it impacts the price of a solar loan when you raise interest rates that quickly. Yeah. Because is, as we all know, the solar construction cycle can take a while from the yep. time you sell that deal to the time that's fully installed, the time you get to PTO. We don't really sell the loans to investors until they're after PTO, but we may have priced that loan six, eight, nine months earlier. Right. So when you have the interest rate environment go up, all of the lenders in the market got squeezed because we priced loans in say May of 22. We tried to sell those loans in November and December of 22. Well, they're completely mispriced for the market at right. that point, right? And so, you know, anticipating that seeing the interest rates go up, there was this, you know, very discoordinated uh, effort by the lenders to try to raise their dealer fees, to reduce the lower APRs, to try to get themselves priced for the market. But there was no way to really predict what the Fed was going to do and how fast and how far uh, they were going to raise rates. And, you know, our loan, the solar loan that, that sort of helps power our industry is, you know, in terms of giving the customer a way to pay, is very sensitive to interest rates, not only because of the APRs uh, that are typically offered, but because of the duration of the loan, right? You can't get a 25-year loan for anything except buy a house, right? Right. Yeah. But that's an awful long time to run at a really low interest rate. Mm. And so if what you're trying to do is subsidize that rate, let's say through a dealer fee, it starts getting prohibitively expensive, like when the when the uh, the rates go up. Like my my best analogy, I don't even know if this is a good one, but like if a if a if a sales rep went out and sold a deal at 250 a watt, right? And but your baseline for that deal is $3 a watt, right? Like what are they going to do, right? Like it's not like you can suddenly like build that project for $3 a watt, right? Or for 250 a watt because upside that's down. what they sold it at, right? You're upside down. And you know, if they had to eat the difference, right? Which I'm not saying that would happen, but if let's say that did happen, they had to eat the difference, they wouldn't necessarily consider that a fee. That's just sort of a mispriced deal. Right. Um, that's a little bit about like what lenders deal with, right? Because the 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 interest rates that we offer are like are below the cost of making the loan. So 
it has to get made up somewhere. And, you know, I, and I know that, that the fees are sometimes a point of sensitivity for, you know, for reps in particular. And we, I understand why. You know, I, I think one of the things that we'd love to see the industry do, uh, you know, when we can as the interest rates are coming down is, you know, move to like a, a, a more normal market rate on the loans so the loans can pay for themselves. Right. Like yeah. like why have to dig into another pocket in order to help subsidize the loan? Brett, you you saw this like middle of 2022 interest rates were starting to go up and things were, you know, the, the Fed was signaling that they were going to go up. You saw this kind of cataclysmic thing happening right when that happened, even though it didn't really hit the rest of the solar industry until probably early to middle of 2023. What was it that you saw? The inflation, like the numbers with inflation, like what people need to realize is um, if you've ever been to my office, Bloomberg's on the entire time, all right? There is economic indicators that you see every single week and you can kind of triangulate and see what is going on before it happens. Now, it's not perfect. If we could all see the future, it would be like, you know, back to the future right. too and the sports almanac yep. and we'd all be billionaires, but you can't do that, but you do get a feel. And so one of the things that I actually don't like about myself is I start worrying about things six months before they happen. And I wish I didn't have the information to be able to have that anxiety. But I was very, very concerned about this. And what was frustrating is I would talk to everybody in the industry and no one was concerned about it. And they're like, what are you talking about? Things are so good and everything like that. And I started going over all these series of events. And even I could not have predicted the sheer velocity of how it happened. And, um, and that was the thing that I think I could have done a better job on. But I mean, who would have thought that interest uh, that inflation rates would get that high? Yeah. And, um, you know, in, you know, I'm a Republican, but I'm amazed at what the federal reserve has done. They've done a really, really good job. And we talk about a term, a soft landing. I really believe we are going to have a soft landing. And, um, so they've done a masterful job. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about like, you know, how many interest rate reductions are going to happen this year? Will it happen in March? Will it happen in May? Those are the discussions because there's enough economic indicators where we're looking at and see, you're starting to see inflation down in the 3% range. Um, you're starting to see unemployment. You know, you look at all of those numbers, all those things tell a story of what's happening in the future, all right? And you have to be on top of that. And even when you look at interest rates historically and you go back to the time where there was higher interest rates in my lifetime, which was the late 70s and the 80s, they moved over a long period of time. It did not move at the sheer velocity that it happened this time. And so the one thing that I'm, this is gonna be the most unpopular thing I've ever said on this is I want to make sure that every sales rep knows is that as interest rates start going down, there are cycles. They're going to go down at some point, hopefully this year. When they start going down, we have all of the loan providers, and it's not just Mosaic, it's Good Leap, it's Dividend. Um, they all took losses, all right, when that happened. So as interest rates start coming down, we need them to keep the rates the same for a period of time to be able to make that back and take advantage of the cycle, the cyclical nature of the downturn in the market. And we want that because as an industry, we need healthy finance companies. Yeah. And I know a lot of salespeople are like, hey, I just want the dealer fees to go down. 
All right. But the reality is that we need you guys to be healthy. We need Goodleap to be healthy. We need Dividend to be healthy. That is the lifeblood of our industry. 90% of our revenue comes from our finance companies. Only 10% is cash. It's really, really important. I think people forget about the macro impact of that. The other question that I get the most, it is the most frustrating question, all right, is about dealer fees. And so to me, it's so obvious. Like if there is a 299 interest rate or a 399 interest rate, and you can go borrow money from a bank at 7.5% or 8% interest, there's a reason you're doing that. You're able to buy down the interest rate and you have to pay to do that like you do on a mortgage. On a mortgage, if you can buy down an interest rate of a quarter point, you always do that because it's the best thing from a long-term standpoint. But there's this perception that salespeople have that dealer fees are profit that's going right into Mosaic's bank account or Goodleaf's bank account or Dividend's bank account, which I know is not correct, but it's mind-boggling how many times people bring that up to me. So how do you, because I'm sure it's come up to you when you're out there <laughs> talking to dealers and everything like that, like when's my, when's my dealer fee going to go down? Yeah. So can you kind of explain, you know, how that works to our audience? Yeah, it, you know, it, um, it comes up a lot, obviously. And I think there's two things, you know, one is that this whole idea of, you know, if you were going to go get a mortgage at 8% and you're going to get a solar loan at three or 4%, like why would those be so priced so differently, right? They're priced differently because it's been subsidized. And you can see this in the auto industry, right? They'll run 0% interest rate promotions, right? That's the dealer helping subsidize the cost of financing for the buyer, right? It, uh, home builders will do that, right? They'll pay points on mortgages on behalf of the homeowner. So it's it's not necessarily unique to our industry that has that subsidy. But I think what ends up happening is it gets viewed as something, to your point, that's just that's what the finance company's take is on the deal. Not even close, right? Because what we need to be able to do, because that loan is not worth So a $10,000 loan, just as a for example, is at price that at that level is not worth $10,000. Like we can't sell it to anyone for 10. No investor is going to buy the loan for $10,000 if it's priced four or five percent below a mortgage rate or what they could even the, the rate they could even earn if they just bought a U.S. Treasury, right, which are sitting at five or six percent today with no risk. So, you know, I, I think what we have to do is 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 probably help the industry do two things. One, sort of better understand that when you're trying to subsidize the interest rate of a loan and it's a very long term loan, you have to do it not just for the first year, right? You are subsidizing the interest rate on that loan for the life of the loan. These are 25-year loans, right? They last a long time. So it starts, the more you try to do that, it starts becoming prohibitively expensive. And, that, and that's what happened is when interest rates were really low, we could price super tight. You know, we had one, four, nine interest rates out there. We had, mm -hmm. you know, 2% two, 2 money. And, but part of it was because the, the, you know, the money, the, the cost to make that loan was so low that we were able to pass those savings through uh, in very low interest rates and reasonable dealer fees. But when that went up, it just had this sort of almost accordion effect uh, on the pricing of the loans, which is why the dealer fees associated with any given APR have gone up so much. So I think over the long run, we need to find a way as an industry collectively to uh, to offer and to finance these products, these projects at higher interest rates, because the less subsidy we're trying to support 
in uh, a customer's you transition to solar, the less sensitivity we're going to have to the interest rate environment. The closer you are to market rates, right, the less this is going to swing back and forth for us, you know, for our installer partners, for the reps. So to put this to bed once and for all, as the CEO of a finance company, you've seen a lot of other finance companies in not just in solar, but in the finance world, like what is a typical because because a thirty percent dealer fee on a three nine nine interest rate for solar, like you're right, sales reps think that you guys are pocketing thirty percent, not realizing that you're borrowing that money at much higher than the two nine or three nine or whatever the the interest rate is. What is a typical profit that a finance company is trying to earn in a normal year? Obviously, the last year has been crazy, but like. What is a typical profit margin that a finance company earns? So I'll, st I'll start with like the revenue margin, right? So when we make a $10,000 loan, right, we're, we're looking to like earn about $500 of revenue on that loan, about 5%. Okay. Um, then out of that, we pay, you know, our cost of our operations and everything yep. else. But that's like what we would hope to net. Like when we, when we take, we make that loan at $10,000, we hope to sell that loan for $10,500. Okay. Now, um, that's if the loan was priced to market, but what we know actually happens, right, is it, the, the loan is priced below market. So it might be a $10,000 loan. We may have dispersed $7,000 and then we're going to sell the loan for $7,500. So the $500 that we're going to get, the 5% we're going to get, we sort of hold that constant no matter where you are on the rate card. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, because that's really what then drives our business and can give us a predictable sort of revenue model. Now, that can get squeezed, right? Interest rates go yep. up. Suddenly, then that that falls apart on you. But but that's what we're really targeting. And so the rest of the differential is purely the subsidy against the, the underpriced loan, right? The sort of project that you sold below the cost of making of building the project or the, you know, the interest rate, in this case, the interest rate that you sold that was, you know, below the cost of making the loan. So on that 5%, you've got to operate your entire business, right? You got to pay for your buildings and your software and all of your personnel, everyone who's processing the loans, right? When it's all said and done, you're left with a sliver. And the hope is, and the plan is that you're just at billions and billions of dollars, right. that small sliver becomes a meaningful amount. That's what makes it work. <clears throat> it's a scale business, right? So we earn, a, you know, a percent or two on total volume. Well, over time, we've made almost $15 billion in loans, right? So wow. that's how you build a business is scale, sustainability over time, sort of consistency, making sure that you're operating efficiently. Um, but, you know, it's not a high, it's, it's not a high margin business. You know, it, uh, I think I, I understand how it can appear that way if you're looking at one component of it, right? If you're looking at, say, just the interest rate or just a dealer fee, um, but but really what the lender's taking out of that loan uh, is is not that much of a percentage uh, of, of the total loan balance. It's, it's really a volume game, which is why, you know, there's only a handful of us in the market. Like Brett, you mentioned earlier, who's operating out there. Like you, you need to have a certain amount of scale to make the business work. The one question I do have, and probably the second question that I get asked the most outside of dealer fees is that, hey, I want to use multiple loan finance partners. And I have been out there championing the fact that we are the only residential installer that uses one loan provider. Uh, 
All right. And I would like to hear why that's important to you. I know why it is. And I also know that everyone doesn't want to have second look business. And I believe this industry needs to go to a sales organization, needs to work exclusively with one installer. And then that installer should work with only one finance partner on the loan side. The TPO business is a little bit different right now because there's so many different ways you can value um, you know, LMI and the Inflation Reduction Act um, adders. Um, VPP is different. So people are like financially modeling it different, but on the loan side, it should be a sales organization should work with one installer and that's, that installer should work with one company from a loan finance standpoint because you and Goodleap have similar models, but it's very different than the dividend, the service finance models where they're trying to take the premium customer and then they want their installers to give the below average customers to you guys and Goodleap, which you guys don't want. And so I know this is a big topic of discussion that's out there. Um, we figured out a very creative solution to do it. And I think we've made it now vogue to do it the right way. But why is that important to you? Could you put it into your words of why you want to work with installers that give you first look business as opposed to second look business? Uh, yes, because the number one reason is it is in the best interest of the installer to do that, right? Because we're in a risk-based business, which means if we can get, there's a lot of variability underneath the average. We are pricing to an average cost of funds. We're pricing to an average credit loss uh, profile. But underneath that, you have customers who don't pay at all, right? Well, you just lost a lot of money on yeah. that deal, right? And then you have customers who pay as agreed. And so and you have the whole sort of range in between. That Once we make a loan, that's really when the story starts for us in terms of whether or not that loan's going to be profitable or not. And when we can partner with an installer, as we have with Freedom Forever, and we've learned a lot in this partnership um, from the Freedom team and by sort of building this program out together. Um, but one of the things that we've learned is that the consistency that we see that we call the through the door population, it's the customers that you bring in right uh, to us uh, who are looking to go solar. When that's really consistent, we can price more tightly, we can approve more credit, because we're we at, we know where that's going to end up. So if you take you know a hundred customers and you we say okay, well we can approve seventy eight of those customers, right? But there's you know there are twenty two that we can't. And if if you get into a mix where there's multiple financing providers involved, and you're getting let's say forty customers, well what if the forty customers you're getting are the like worst customers that you are going to approve in the in the whole stack. And and so, you know, there's there's a, a cross subsidization that happens between the good the better customers and then the somewhat, you know, less creditworthy customers. And that's a good thing. That helps more people go solar. It helps, you know, the the install the conversion rates, the reps get more approvals, they get more sales closed. It helps the pull through rates all the way around the system benefits from uh in from lending providers being able to have a predictable population so we can expand as much as possible how many times we can say yes. 
And when people ask me, why has this program been so successful? Because people throughout the industry, Brett, have seen the success of this program and they ask us about it. Like, what is it that you guys do with freedom that, you know, makes it so successful? And I think this is the single most important thing. I think the sort of the, uh, the, the partnership where we see every lead from the very best customer to the very worst customer, however you want to define it, gives us the opportunity to give you and the sales reps um, in, the, in the Freedom Network to the best possible chance of getting an approval. And, uh, and to me, that was, the, the, I think, the big unlock uh, associated with this program. And to summarize, I believe our portfolio of customers, on average, have a higher credit score than the typical portfolio from the rest of the partners. Do you know what that range is? Usually we see from high to low, you know, 10 to 20 points of swing in average FICO. What I would say that we see consistently in the Freedom portfolio is for any given sort of um, FICO profile, um, we end up, so you just take a gra- grab a segment of customers uh, that have a 740 average FICO, uh, we see better performance. Um, and I think there are two reasons for that. One, I think, owes to Freedom uh, and then one owes to this model that we've put together. One is if you have high quality build, you have happy customers, happy customers will pay their, for their solar loan, right? right? The system is doing what they thought it was going to do. And so the, you know, the quality of the installation is re- and the quality of the customer experience is really important. That drives credit performance. And then the second is that it, it, when we um, when you don't have oversampling of bad customers, Brett, you mentioned like somebody will go to dividend first. And then, you know, if they get a decline, they'll go to a lender like a mosaic where they think and they know that we're going to have a a wider credit box. Um, But you don't need many of those customers on the bottom tier to blend in, right, to make all of the credit performance worse. And then all of a sudden it just doesn't work anymore. Right. Like the math doesn't work. We can't make money on those loans. And so because of that consistency of the population, we we don't have like, you know, sort of the uh, we have a very natural ratio um, of good customers, you know, average customers, and then as many poor customers as from a credit standpoint as we can pull in uh, and help cross subsidize. And, and so, th- you know, that the, the combination of those two things, you know, quality flow that's predictable for us and quality builds, you know, I think gets us pound for pound better credit performance than we see in any other program. And I want to make sure that like this translates into so, so great, you get higher credit performance, what does that mean to Mosaic? Can, does that mean you can sell that loan for a little bit higher uh, in a securitization? So typically, we're not going to get credit. Once we blend all of our loans together, we're not necessarily going to get a ton of pricing credit for that. But I think what it has enabled us to do over time in this program, and you, have, you guys have worked with us on this, is continue to expand the, the population of customers we can say yes to. I don't think any other program out there even comes close in terms of approval coverage. So there is a benefit there. There's a very tangible sort of economic benefit. In this program together, we've chosen to invest that benefit in expanding the population of approvals as opposed to driving down price. You know, I think you could probably pull either lever, but if you think about how many different constituents win every time we can deliver another yes, the homeowner wins, the rep wins, Freedom wins. We win. Like it's just that seems to be the the best way to unlock growth and success in the industry is to have strategic partnerships 
right, where we design the programs together and we expand as much as possible how much we can cover in terms of the homeowner population. And to put that in perspective, I think last year in 2023, our overall approval percentage, meaning the amount of customers that applied for credit with Mosaic versus the amount that were approved, I think it was over 70%. And conversely, before we went with this model, we were typically near 60%. Um, you know, I think the best we ever saw it was in the low 60s. One company was in the mid 50s. But let's say it's just a 10% gap that we've we've got 10% more yeses than than any other model. Well, at our scale, that's thousands and thousands of additional customers that we would have otherwise said no to. So, and the other thing that I've you you've started to talk about this more and more that I didn't even realize is the quality aspect of the construction, the longevity, because it's a, it's a 20 year loan, 25 year loan, you know? And so we're in business, we're in partnership with these customers for decades and we need the system to work in order for, for the customer to continue to want to make the payments on that, on that solar. Did you think through that? That's a bad way to ask you. I, I, I mean, <laughs> Yes, I did, but I want to make sure that this is not just about freedom. I want everybody going to Mosaic or Good Leap or wherever in doing this model where they can pass. And they might not be able to do it at the scale of tens of thousands of customers on an annual basis like freedom, but the difference between having 90 customers pass credit and 100 in a quarter is a massive number. That's an extra 11.1% of installs that you can do. Like people are looking at this through the wrong lens. This is actually beneficial to the installer to be exclusive with the finance partner. And we just need to shout it from the rooftops. I'm, we want to, this is not just about freedom. I want everyone to be exclusive with you guys or everybody to be exclusive with Goodly because it's the right thing. One of the things that we are facing as an industry is a lot of negative publicity out there because of a lot of different things, not just around this issue, but this is one of the ways that we can truly clean up our industry. One of the last things I wanted to talk to you about is um, the term I hear, I hear is takeout partners or, or the buyers, the people that are actually buying these loans. I've heard a lot that it's it's typically similar groups of investors that are buying not just from you guys, from other finance companies. Who are these people? And I know you'd mentioned they're, they're all kind of looking at like, what is the percentage of these customers that are going to stay and pay their bill for the life of the loan, right? Who are these individuals and why is it so important that that it's healthy across the board? You always mentioned we want, we, we want all finance companies to make a profit, to be healthy, and for their portfolio to have low default rates. Tell us about these takeout partners or what do you, what do you guys call them? Um, off takers. Off takers. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's, um, it's going back to what Brett was saying earlier. We, we have an industry where 90% of the sales are financed in some way, right? Like, so our industry is completely dependent upon the supply of capital liquidity coming into the market to be able to, whether it's a lease or whether it's a loan to be able to fund that. And, and you're right. When you think about, well, where's all this capital coming from? It's coming from a lot of like major institutional investors. So think insurance companies, mm. fund managers, large banks, um, you know, they, they are looking for ways to deploy capital for an, you know, an appropriate return. They look at the solar loan and they say, it's a homeowner, 
it's a prime credit homeowner, the use of proceeds is going solar, all of this looks good. I think where they, where we could lose confidence in that market is probably not in the credit underwriting, but it is in the customer experience. And it's, it's really in the quality, the quality of the construction, the quality of the customer experience, the quality of the selling process. If a customer is missold or feels missold, and it doesn't matter if they have an 800 FICO score, right? Somebody who feels like they were taken advantage of is going to retaliate by not paying their loan. Right. Um, and we have seen that, right, in our own data. And so you have to have, you know, transparency. The customer knows what they're getting into. They know what they're signing up for. There's a fair exchange of value. And then there's quality construction. If you have all of those, frankly, our job then is pretty easy. Our job of just underwriting the right credit and sorting out the goods from the bads from a pure credit standpoint, we can do that all day long. But I, I think that, the you know, for the industry to really continue to grow, sustain, double, triple, quadruple in size, we're just going to have to bring in billions of capital. And that has to have confidence attached to it. And that confidence yeah. is going to come from the quality that the that is being experienced by that homeowner. Yeah. So obviously, like, um, uh, you know, I made a joke the other day, but it's really kind of true. Like, I feel like I'm at a business episode of like Survivor every week because it seems like every week somebody gets kicked off the island from a residential installation. And it's not like a bunch of small companies anymore. There's some, you know, larger names in the top 30, they're having issues. I, I'd love to just get your take on the turbulence um, in the residential installation market that you've seen over the last few quarters. Yeah, it's been, it's been painful for us. Um, in a couple of different ways. One, you know, we develop good business relationships with our partners. So then when our partners suffer, right, you sort of suffer with them, right? You see their businesses shrinking or, or them going through distress. And there's oftentimes it, it, the things that are going on that we can't help them with. Like we love situations where a customer a customer has a challenge and we can step in and actually help them with it. But I think some of that churn that's been going on in the market, you know, Mosaic can't really do much to help except you know, provide some like moral support. So it's been difficult from that standpoint. And, and then frankly, on a more pragmatic level, it's been difficult for us financially, right? Like I think one of the things that we have done really well, longest track record in the history uh, in, of residential solar in terms of the, you know, the longevity of how long we've been originating these loans, the performance track record, the number of securitizations we've done. Um, so we, we have a lot under our belt, but one of the things we didn't really experience yet until the last several quarters is this sort of installer distress, installer failure rate. And it has cost us. It's cost us. Like when an when a, a installer goes out of business and we have a bunch of committed loans out there into their pipeline, right? That's expensive for us to try to step in and make good for those homeowners, right? We don't want to have homeowners like stuck with half-built projects and half-dispersed loans. That's a bad situation for everybody. Mm -hmm. So that has been a real sort of financial impact for Mosaic. And I, I think all of the lenders and financing providers that support the industry, unfortunately, I'm not sure that we're all the way through that yet. I, I don't know what your read on it is, uh, but I do think that there's probably a couple more quarters uh, of difficult times before I think the industry really feels like we turn a corner. I think that's going to happen in the second half of this year. I think the lower interest rate environment will help. That's not going to be the only um, the only thing that drives uh, the turnaround. But I, I, I guess our point of view right now is next couple of quarters are still going to be tough. Back half of the year, I think things are going to get a lot better. 
I agree. And um, it reminds me of, you know, we gave the analogy of the $3 and the two fifty, and it reminded me of 22 when we had equipment shortages. And you would think you would have, um, you know, equipment purchased at one price, and your manufacturer would call you back and go, yeah, I know I agreed to that deal, but I'm going to charge you 20 cents a watt more. And so then you're backwards, and we couldn't go back and reprice those to our customers never like that. And so we just built projects at a loss for like two quarters and we lost money and it wasn't fun. We made it back in the second half of the year. So I'm excited and I think that the same thing is gonna happen for all of us in the back half of 2024. I really do think we're gonna see further contraction, further pain in Q1 and Q2. We're gonna see more residential installation failures but I'm very optimistic about the last half of it. And I even think, and I've been like on a lot of webinars with financial analysts, I was probably the most pessimistic person around residential solar growth um, for the last four quarters. Now I'm the contrarian again because I'm starting to get optimistic. And um, I did it with um, uh, an analyst yesterday and uh, they couldn't believe how optimistic I was, just as they couldn't believe how pessimistic I was before it got really bad. So um, we'll see what happens. It's like trying to, you know, predict the future a little bit. But um, being in the field and being in somewhat the installation trenches, I get a really, really good feel of where we're going. And this winnowing of so many people that have got into the residential installation space over the last few years the winnowing and separating um, the wheat from the chafe is, I think, a really good thing for our industry. Yeah, and that brings me to my last question. You guys are the first company to ever institute PPW caps on your loans. In a world where I think most finance companies, you know, they want to loan up, loan as much money as they can. As we talked about earlier, it's about dollars loaned, and that's how you make your money. Um, why did you guys put a price per watt cap, or in other words, a cap to the amount that a sales rep can charge a customer on the solar loan? Nobody, nobody else in the solar industry has done that on the, from the finance company that I'm aware of. So I think we've tried all along, really since inception, to have a, um, an orientation toward consumer protection, right? Um, because again, kind of what I was saying about confidence in the industry and the ability of, for us to be continued to source capital that can come in and help finance these loans and finance these sales, we need to maintain people's confidence. And so, you know, one example, even before the price per watt caps is that we got beat up about a lot. We have always done a welcome call. You guys know that. Yeah. Um, and I can't tell you how many of our partners over the years have said, why do you do this? It's going to get in the way of the sale. It's hard for the customer. And, you know, like no operational process is perfect, but it's one like we sort of stuck to our guns. We had a lot of conviction around we want to be able to talk to that customer, explain the terms and conditions of the loan just to make sure that they understand the deal that they're signing up for. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the failure rates are really, really low. Right. Cancellation rates are really, really low. But consumer protection is rep protection, right? Because we have that customer on a recorded phone call telling us that they understand these key and sort of important parameters around the ITC and how the loan works, when their first payment is due, how much the first payment is, the fact their payment's going to step up. So, you know, we, we really sort of like maintained our discipline around that. And I think one of the things that we learned is it produced a healthier business. 
And we do think that it protects reps as much as it protects consumers. Everybody wins when there's a fair exchange of value and there's transparency. And so pricing has been more difficult, right? Pricing is less transparent in this market historically. There's no MSRP. There's no sticker on the side right. that says this how much how much it should cost. And so, um, but we have really felt like we needed to begin to create some guidelines. But this is what we we think is a reasonable amount to charge for this, right? We're not the panel man- manufacturer. We're not even sitting in your shoes where we don't deeply understand the the you know the labor costs, the install costs, the complexities that can go through that, the soft costs that can vary by market. But we have enough data and experience now to be able to say, typically. Right, an installation of this size in this market is going to sit underneath this pricing level in price per watt, and it would just allow us to begin to create a framework on on some price governance, which again is just helping to ensure a fair exchange of value with the homeowners, and that a homeowner is not going to sign up for something that's more expensive than they should be paying simply because they didn't know what they should pay, um, and and again at the same time trying to set it at a level where it's not going to interfere with, you know, a rep's ability to like price the job appropriately, right? Not not all rooftops are the same, um, and not all situations are the same. So you know I think it is something that we are are actually hoping is a practice that is going to continue to evolve and improve in the industry. If we could ever get to something like you have in a car lot where there's a sticker price, right. um, that would be magic, actually, right? No, very few people ever pay the sticker price. Sometimes you pay more, sometimes you pay less, but it it gives everyone this like a common frame of reference to this is the value associated with this purchase, and uh, it's just harder to do in our industry. And so we're we're trying to to sort of create uh, a mechanism to do that. Yeah, it's difficult to do because every every house, every roof is just custom and different and varies so widely from one house to the next. But Brett, this is something you have been wanting to see from finance companies for a long time. What did you think when you saw the announcement come out that Mosaic has a price cap on its customer uh, loan amounts? Uh, I was very excited about it. We are the first installation company to have price caps. And I know there's pressure on installation companies that don't want this. Um, but this is really, really important. And a lot of people are targeting compliance through a lot of different ways. A lot of people are trying to come up with this uniform, like almost like a real estate license, which I don't think is a terrible idea. There's several different companies trying to go out there and doing that. Um, there's one organization that's run by sales organizations, which is ridiculous. Like sales organizations are not going to create a collective, to police themselves, all right? So like to me, that is comedy, but they are out there. And I think the answer is price caps. Um, We have what's going on in Nevada where they believe that the contractors board believe that if you have an employee who is the responsibility of the installation company, that you will have a better customer experience. Um, I don't necessarily agree, but we'll see if that works. But the key to everything is price caps. All right. What like every piece of unethical behavior is in how high you sell. When you think about some of the really black eyes in our industry, um, power home pink, we all know they were selling significantly higher than the market, two to three dollars a watt higher than the marketplace. All right. And that could have been stopped with price caps. And when you think about like most of the attorney generals that are upset it's nine of the 12 states are pink slash power home states. 
the Kentuckys, the Tennessees, where they operated, where there wasn't a freedom or a Sunrun or some of the large companies that I believe do it the right way and have ethics. They focused on those and took advantage of those customers. And now we are having to deal with the black eye in the industry of some bad actors. But I do believe if we had price caps across the board with all the finance companies, that eliminates 80 to 90% of the unethical behavior because you just can't do things. You can't do the tear shaving. All those types of things are captured in a price per watt. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a leader. I know it's not simple to stand up and do the right thing when everyone is telling you and your sales partners and your installation partners don't want it, but it's the right thing to do. So thank you for your leadership on that. Well, we appreciate that. And I, I, I just to you sort of add on to your thought, consumer protection is everybody's responsibility in this industry. And, and we have really wanted to be on the leading edge of that and a proponent of it. But, but really, you know, I'll say it again, consumer protection is also rep protection. Like these two things do not sit in opposition to one another, right? Because right. consumers will, like if that consumer is, is ha there's better referral business that rep might get. There's yep. a lot of goodness that can come from a customer having a good experience. On the defensive side, you know, one of the things that we have found with our recorded welcome calls is if a customer complains and says, I was told X, Y, Z, and I didn't understand this. And then we can pull a call and you have the customer saying, no, no, I get it. Yep. Uh, that's exactly what the rep told me. Da, da, da. You know, so there have been times in our experience in the market where the welcome call has actually vindicated the sales rep. Yeah. And what the sales rep has said happened in the home. And so it's only one mechanism, but, you know, price caps and, 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 you know, clearer disclosures and standard procedures, all of these things are just going to create, a, I think, a, just a cleaner playing field for everybody to operate in this industry. And I think it's all of our responsibility to help make that happen. It's what we need. And that has kind of been the theme. I mean, we started talking about this last year, but it's definitely kind of becoming the theme of this season as well, which is just compliance, take care of the customer and, you know, think more long-term in this industry. I think it's too, too often, Everybody's thinking about that next paycheck. And, you know, if they can just think a little more long-term, then this industry will provide an amazing career for, for a lifetime. All right, well, his name is Patrick Moore. He is the CEO of Mosaic. Patrick, you crushed it. Thank you so much for joining. I appreciate the invite and the opportunity. Thanks, guys. All right, and thank you, Brett. And we will see you guys on the next episode.